So let's pick up with the book of Exodus. Exodus starts where Genesis ended. With, with, with one minor exception. A period of 400 years separates the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Four hundred years in which God's family, Israel, which was about seventy or seventy-two people, lived in Egypt as immigrants. And God blessed them and they were fruitful and they multiplied and filled the land. And the original Pharaoh, the original king of Egypt that brought them down had died long ago. And the pharaohs that came after were not friendly to the Israelites. And so they wanted to keep this people in control somehow. And so they enslaved them and they forced them into manual labor to build the cities of Egypt. So the first 13 chapters of the book of Exodus tell how God heard the cry of his people and the time had come to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. It was time to bring his firstborn son, Israel, out from underneath, underneath the slave, uh, the, out from under the rulership of Pharaoh and into a life of serving God. Now, the word in Hebrew for serve or work or labor is also the word that means worship. And so this is somewhat of a wordplay by the author of Exodus, something of a, 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 a twist. Now, 
Because Israel is in slavery working for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was considered to be the firstborn son of God by the Egyptians. And what God is saying is, I'm going to bring Israel out from worshiping or serving Pharaoh. And I will free them to worship or serve me. Because Israel, not Pharaoh, is my firstborn son. And so you can see this if you want an example in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Where God says, out of Egypt I called my son. So in chapter chapters 1 through 13, the whole first 13 chapters of Exodus, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, shows his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt. You see, the Egyptians were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. One of their gods, for instance, was the sky itself. One of their gods was the earth. Uh, one of their gods, the Nile River, was seen as the blood or the lifeblood of one of the gods. And in fact, the Nile River for the Egyptians was very much like the Ganges River in India. It was a sacred national symbol. Other gods in Egypt were symbolized by different animals or creatures in the world. Some of the gods, for instance, were depicted as a cow or an ox. Other gods were depicted as a frog. Uh, others were depicted in the storm. 
or through things like gnats or flies that swarm across the land. So when God sends his judgment on Egypt, his purpose is not just to bring Israel out from slavery, but it's to do so in a way that shows all of the people of the world watching that even the gods of the most powerful nation in the entire world at that time are powerless in the face of the one true God when he decides to act. Because remember, all through the Old Testament, God is trying to reach the nations through his relationship with Israel. His desire, his desire is that the nation see what he's doing in and through Israel. And by seeing his relationship with Israel, they will be drawn to ask, who is this God? And how can I know him? And so it's no surprise that when God chooses to judge the nation of Egypt, he does it with ten different acts of judgment. The first one being an act of judgment over the Nile River itself. And then moving through the different gods of Egypt. And showing his sovereignty over the things in creation that were supposed to be controlled by those gods in particular. So that's why the plagues involve things that seem strange, like gnats or flies or frogs. <laughs> 
or sores on people's skin. Or storms with hail and thunder and lightning. As we go through the plagues, it's like God is attacking the gods of Egypt one by one and knocking them off of their thrones. And then we come to the final plagues where the God creates over the land a thick darkness. Because Egypt's main God was the God Ra. Ra was the sun god. And so God closes off the sun, shuts it off, and makes darkness only in Egypt, not where the Israelites live. Now, how did God do this? Was there an eclipse or some clouds? The text doesn't tell us. What it tells us was that it was a darkness so dark that it could almost be felt. The gods of Egypt had become completely powerless in the face of this unknown god of the Hebrews. And Egypt was ruled by Pharaoh. And it was believed by the Egyptians that Pharaoh was the firstborn son of Ra. So Pharaoh, every Pharaoh in line in that dynasty was the embodiment of Ra and the uh, divine authority. So after these devastating plagues, judgments that had been brought upon Egypt, God, through Moses, gives Pharaoh one last chance to let his people go to freedom. God says, let Israel, my firstborn son, go so that they may worship me, serve me in the desert. Uh, 
and Pharaoh, as we know, does not agree. And so God says, because you will not let my firstborn son go. You have forfeited the life of the firstborn sons of Egypt. All the way up to Pharaoh's own firstborn son. And that's the final judgment. That's the that, that's what it takes for Pharaoh to finally say, get out of here. And if you read, and when you read these chapters in Exodus, you will see that it wasn't just Israel who left Egypt. There was a large crowd, the Bible calls it a mixed multitude, that came out of Egypt with them. Non-Israelites, Gentiles, looked at the judgments that God had brought upon Egypt. They looked at the favor that God had showed to his covenant people. And they realized what God had wanted the people to realize all along. This God of the Hebrews, this unknown God of the people of the desert, was the true sovereign God that had created and had control over all and so in faith with faith this group of Gentiles joined with Israel they became part of the people of God and this is before the law was ever given so again we see that it's by faith that even Gentiles can come so in Exodus chapters 14 and 15 we see how God finally dramatically rescues his people and 
He brought them out of Egypt through mighty acts of judgment. And they left Egypt and traveled through the desert, but they came to an obstacle, the Red Sea. And in the story that we all have probably heard many times before, God split the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could pass through into salvation. In fact, in the Old Testament, when it talks about being saved, this is the primary image that it has in mind. Being delivered from an actual enemy that is trying to overcome and literally enslave or kill. And this is also where the language of redemption comes from when it says people are redeemed. Because that's slave language, redemption. If someone is enslaved to a master, then another person could come along and pay the master the price of the slave. And that slave would then be free to serve either the new master or to go free and serve uh, themselves. So that's what redeemed literally means. So God saves Israel, He redeems Israel. So that they can serve slash worship Him rather than Pharaoh. This is the image of salvation that the New Testament authors and Jesus himself use. In so many ways, Jesus patterns his ministry after the events of the Exodus. After all, what was the Last Supper anyway? It was a celebration of Passover. Passover, the event when God brought 
Israel out of Egypt and prevented their firstborn son from dying. You see, this is why we study the Old Testament in the books of the Torah. Because it gives us the background and the foundation for all of the symbols and the imagery and the actions that happen in Jesus' ministry. In fact, the later prophets in the Old Testament would refer to Israel crossing through the Red Sea as Israel's baptism. There's another belief that the ancient world, Israel and the other nations held that also brings to light some of this. You see, in the people of the ancient Near East, that area of the world, what we would call the Middle East, most of them were not seafaring, sailing, ocean-going people. And in the myths, in the mythology, in the beliefs of Babylon, Assyria, uh, other cultures around that time, the ultimate symbol of chaos or demonic evil was the sea. They called it the abyss or the deep. Because it was such a, uh, a, a, a it, it was such a powerful symbol of chaos and disorder. It was, you couldn't do anything in the face of the ocean if the waves come crashing in. Then even rocks or stone or mountains will be washed away. And so there was a great fear of the sea, of the deep. And it was frequently depicted in ancient artwork from around Israel and Israel's neighbors. 
তেলো এই বিষয়টা ইসরায়েল কমান্ড কো মধ্যে মনি ইসরায়েল রো তো আকো কাকো পড়েছি সব লোক এই বিষয় জানিছিলে এজ এ ড্রাগন অর সারপেন্ট আর এই তো সমুদ্র সময় কোন হইছিলে ড্রাগন বা বড় সাপ বড় সাপ বলিছে মানে ভাবছিলে and so the gods of the various nations in all of their mythologies would in some way or another at some point fight against this chaos dragon this serpent tero angel lokomane apamane dekhibe je sei samara lokomane is misar desa ho ba israel ro tato parsar thiba desa guli ko semane kon bhautile na e hochi sobodar bada mondo bisoy ya birutare ami kemte juddha koriba sei ta sekan kor chinta thila and even the author of revelation as i shared a few years ago when i was here picks up on this same myth the same concept and uses it to explain what actually happened in the gospel in revelation chapter 12 But for Israel in the Old Testament them when God split the waters of the Red Sea the prophets and the psalm writers who would come later looking back on that event বর্তমান আজই পরবর্তী লেখকগুলিক আসমাজতারে যে পূর্ব ঘটনাকে যেতলে মানে ভুল করে পছন্দ করছেনি would describe it in their poetry and in their songs আসমানে নিজর কবিতা মাধ্যমে আর নিজর লেখা মাধ্যমে এই প্রকার বর্ণনা করছেনি যে as god splitting the head of the chaos serpent যে পরমেশ্বর এই মহান বিপদ বা এই মহান রাক্ষস যাকে ড্রাগন বলি লোকে ভয় করতে তাহাকে ঈশ্বর বিভাগে বিখণ্ড করেছেন আমেন আমেন হ্যালেলুয়া হ্যালেলুয়া Now let me tell you exactly where you can read this in your Old Testaments. Write this down. Look it up later. Psalm 74. Gita Sanita 74 Parva. Psalm 89. Gita Sanita 98 Parva. Ezekiel chapters 29 and chapter 32 Ezekiel 29 and 32 and the last one Isaiah Rahab is the name of the the chaos monster. And this word 
the ransomed in English. I don't know how it is in yeah, real, yeah. but that's the word redeemed, okay. yeah. bought from yeah. slavery. Yes, so this is them looking back, Isaiah looking back. Isaiah is looking back at the Exodus as a pattern for how God will deliver his people in the future. See, what if some of the Ramana and Gurafi go to some of the Bible from Andu? And take your pen or your marker and, and no, 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 no. highlight this. No, and crossing through the Red Sea was the very foundation of Israel's self-identity. Who was Israel? Israel were the redeemed people who God brought out of slavery with a mighty hand of power. Israel were the ones who were saved from the hand of Pharaoh who was acting on behalf of the chaos monster. Israel 
Israel had been brought out from under the control of the most uh, the the most you have the word primordial like the primordial evil the source of evil the one who symbolized that evil they had been brought out of slavery from this was their salvation this was their gospel they had been saved and redeemed and set free and only after that in Exodus 19 through 23, only after they were saved, does God then give them the law? The law never saved Israel. The purpose of God giving the law was not to give Israel a way to get saved. The law, the Torah, was given to point Israel back to the one who already saved them. The law was the relationship between God and the people who were already saved by their faith in God. This is so important to remember. Otherwise you will read the New Testament and misunderstand well how Paul or Jesus talks about the law. And you may commit the error that many Christians have committed over the centuries. As looking at the law and seeing it as, as a curse or something that only brings bondage and therefore seeing it as less than good or less than holy. And 
Jesus, and even Paul never looked at the law itself as something bad or evil. What they saw was this simple fact that the law is not what can save anyone. The law, rather, was how saved people should live because of their gratitude to the one who saved them. So the law was given to Israel to point out and to offer them life and hope and a continued relationship. With the God who had already, out of love, reached down and saved them. This is the same pattern in the New Testament with the New Testament ethics that we're given. The apostles and even Jesus give his people commands we have the law of the spirit that leads us that we follow but we don't follow the law or keep Jesus' commands in hopes that he will save us we keep Jesus' commands because he has saved us. And his commands show us the type of life that saved people walk in. That's exactly what the law did for Israel back in the first covenant. The law written on stone tablets by God Himself. This was how Israel related to God to show the world that they were God's people. So that the nations watching would come and take notice and want to know who is this God that Israel serves. Now, God gave this law in a particular format that I want you to understand. Do 
He gave this law in the form of a treaty. You know, a treaty between countries, uh, an agreement when a country's at war and they sign a peace treaty. So he gave him the law in the form of a treaty. And it was a very particular kind of treaty. That people at that time were already familiar with from the countries and the nations that they knew around them. It was called, and this is the name of it, it was called a suzerain treaty. Now, suzerain, suzerain is the word for an ancient king, an ancient raja. In the ancient world, the time of Israel in the second millennium BC, so 1400 BC, way before the time of Jesus. Countries had ways of relating to each other. You had these suzerains, these rajas, and then you had smaller uh, uh, cities or towns or villages that lived under them. So let's let me give you an example. Let's say there's there's a, a, a small city. A small group of people who aren't who don't have a skill in warfare or weapons. And uh, this small group of people is attacked by a large, powerful enemy. In fact, let's use a personal example here to make it easier. Let's say my good friend Rohini Kant here is a powerful, mighty, angry suzerain. So mean, so fierce. Tell him. And he has big muscles. And he's a bully. He picks on little people. That sounds just like Rohini, doesn't it? So, let's say that the mighty Rohini comes and there's a tiny little weak group of people 
So I cry out. Because I have a friend who's even bigger and meaner and stronger than Rohini. I know of the great Raja Elias. So Elias, Elias comes and he beats down Rohini. He puts him in a headlock. He twists his arm behind his back. And he says, you leave James Michael alone. And never pick on him again. And if I hear about it, you will pay. So, Rohini obviously cannot stand up to the big strong Elias. And so he runs away, leaving me alone. Now, I show gratitude to Elias. Because Elias freed me and redeemed me. And so it would be customary then for Elias and I to enter into an agreement. We would make a treaty, a suzerain treaty. And it would be written down and witnesses would be there to see the ceremony. And it would be between a treaty between the great powerful King Elias and the small and weak but very grateful James Michael. And so I would become his vassal, his servant. 
And depending on whether he was a good king or a bad king, I would either be in a much better off position, or it would be worse than before, and I would look for ways in the future to rebel. So these treaties had a very specific format. They started with a, a, a historical overview. That would tell everyone who was reading and everyone in the future who looked back on this what the good King Elias had done for the weak, poor me. So it, it might say. So it might be written in such a way that it says, I, the great and magnificent King Elias, was so kind and so loving that I brought the weak and small James Michael out from slavery, out from underneath the crushing hand of the evil Rohini <laughs> So the next part of the treaty then would be written and it would consist of what the king, the suzerain, wanted the vassal to do for him. So it would have what's called the stipulations, the requirements of the covenant. It would say, for instance, Elias, King Elias would say, you meant to give Rohingyad all of your money, me, you only give 50% of your money. And you only have to come clean my house once per month. And when you pray to your God, you must remember to say a prayer of blessing for King Elias. Then in the covenant, the treaty would come the part known as the blessings and the curses. It would say, 
If you keep these requirements, then I, as your good king, as your suzerain, will protect you from enemies. I'll make sure you always have enough clothes to wear and food to eat. And my gods will look with favor upon you. Then would come the part known as the curses. And the curses would be much longer than the blessings. And they would contain terrible things that were meant to scare me so that I never rebel against the king. If you break my covenant requirements, I will come and I will beat you down. I will stab your eyes out. I'll pull your teeth out. I'll make sure that no one can recognize you. I'll burn your house down. On and on and on. And I will call my gods to curse against you and your family. So it was meant to be very scary and very serious. So that the vassal does not want to rebel against the suzerain. And then there would be a calling together of the witnesses. People that would watch this agreement being made between the suzerain and the vassal. And then there would be a it would say in the treaty it would say make sure that once a year on the anniversary of this treaty that this is read aloud to all of your descendants every year and then two copies of the treaty would be written out Two, usually on two tablets. And one tablet would go back with the suzerain and be put in the temple of the suzerain's god. And the other would be kept by the vassal and put in the temple of the vassal's god. So that heaven and earth, all creation, would be a witness and would 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 know of this treaty. 
बर्तन यही चुक्ति सम्बन्ध में यो सन्धि सम्बन्ध में समग्र पृथ्वी स्वर्ग समस्त साक्षी रे चुक्ति then we would share a meal together aur se bare kon karibe e bisho ko mane pokeki eta maha bhojo prastut karibe we would celebrate this new relationship bartan gore nutana sandhis bale gore nua samparka samane modhere gore gadi utila etanu se nua samparka nimonde samane gore bhoji raayan kori by breaking bread together and enjoying wine and uh, meals from the animal that was sacrificed on this occasion this is normal in the ancient world this is how these things would happen It's also exactly what God does with Israel through the Torah. God gives the law as the suzerain treaty for Israel. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who brought you out of slavery to Pharaoh. You shall have no other gods before me. All of the 10 commandments are the stipulations for this covenant. And then they're expanded on by the later laws of Torah. This happens all in Exodus 19 and 20. And God gives the laws through chapter 24, 20, yeah, through 23. And then we come to Exodus chapter 24. And Moses tells the people in verse 3 what God's laws and treaty was. And the people respond with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And so Moses then writes down everything of the treaty that God has said. He gets up in the morning. He sets up pillars around the base of Mount Sinai where Israel is camped. And he offers sacrifices to God which provide meat 
And these are a fellowship offering, signifying the relationship that now exists between the great suzerain God and his vassal people Israel. And he takes the blood from the sacrifices and he splashes the blood over the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God has made with you. And then Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons go up the mountain with the elders of Israel and go over and they have a meal in the presence of God. They eat and they drink and they can see God on the mountain. And even though in Scripture it says that no one can see God and survive, Verse, seven, let's, verse 11 says God did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. Because they had entered into a covenant that he had initiated. He was inviting them into his presence to share a covenant meal. And then he calls Moses and Aaron higher up to the mountain where he can give the law, the tablets. To the holiest part of the mountain. And then only Moses himself, God calls him up into God's very presence. He gives Moses the covenant, the agreement, the suzerain treaty. And this is the giving of the law. The covenant relationship with Israel has begun. But this covenant relationship with Israel is a conditional covenant. There are requirements that Israel has to keep 
आहुत गुड सत्य रही गुड़े विषय आवश्यकता रही ईश्वर आप चाहूल जेईसरा लोक मे सब विषय गुड़िक मानने जाए चुक्ति बलवत्त र But Moses intercedes on behalf of his people. And the people, when they learn of the sin that they committed when Moses comes down, they they respond with with anguish and repentance. The one of the tribes, the Levites. Goes through and 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 forcibly kills the remaining rebels that continue to worship the false god. Ah, what the man say? Levio, local man is a man. Call call chanti. Jao chanti. Ek jo bosti jaiye. Jo mani isthano ko virutare. Jo devade bhi manu ko ro puja kurtile. Se sabu bula ka adhat kari. Se su bahar ko ro chanti. And Moses begs for God to please don't leave. Go with us still. महास्वर्ग 
Israel is a sinful people. They're infected with the very same disease that all the peoples, all the nations of the earth have, which is sin. So how can a holy God live among a sinful people? How can the God of Sinai go with his people when they leave Mount Sinai? The answer comes in the last chapters of Exodus 36 through 40. God gives his people the commands on how to build a portable Mount Sinai. A place where God can dwell in the midst of his people without his holiness spreading out and consuming them like fire. And where this covenant meal can be celebrated regularly and the covenant agreement can be seen and participated in regularly. And so Exodus ends with this structure, this thing that we call the tabernacle being built. And in the very last chapter, the glorious presence of God as a cloud and a pillar of fire comes and fills the tabernacle right where uh, the Holy of Holies is built. God has now moved in and pitched his tent in the midst of his people. Now what do they do? That's what Leviticus will tell us. But we're over time, so we're going to finish now. Thank you. Thank you.